0: Justice and, and trying to do cross-cultural ministry, um, is, as a part of the church and, uh, and the difficulty of it. And the pastor, who's a few years younger than me, told a story, uh, from his experience in high school. And I give you the age range because he's, this was in about the early 1990s. And he grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, and played football for his school. And he said, you know, he had experience in being in diverse contexts. I didn't tell you, he's, he's white. And he, on this football team, he said there were, there were four white players. Everybody else on the team was black. He said, and all four of us played on the offensive line. And we took great pride. In, the, in that position, because we had a star running back. A matter of fact, this star running back was so good that he got a shot to play in the NFL for uh, for the Arizona Cardinals. And so he said, that senior year, we were playing for the state championship, and as a part of the playoffs, we had to travel to another part of Georgia that was not as diverse as Atlanta. And as we step off of the bus and we are walking to the field, uh, you know, the, there's a path into the uh, into the stadium, and he says it's, it's lined with fans from the opposing team on both sides of the of the path there, and they are shouting the most heinous racist things at our team. Says the game starts, we're all unnerved. The game starts and. Um, and, and we, because we are so unnerved by this, it's, you know, it's a, it's a three plays and out. We can't get a first down. And he, he said, I, I was the center. So, you know, you're about to punt the ball. It's my job to, to hike the ball to the punter. And, uh, I was so nervous. I managed to hike the ball over the head or of, of our six foot three punter and all the way into the end zone and the opposite team runs and. Jumps on the ball and it is seven <laughs> nothing. Right. He said, "We we settled down a little bit, uh, but we couldn't score. So we go into halftime still down seven nothing. And guess what happens on the way from the field into the locker room? The same thing that happened at the beginning of the game. The opposing team uh, fans are shouting again racist and heinous things at their at their team. See, the locker room is quiet at halftime." He says, we're all uh, shaken and disoriented. And he says, you know, our star running back at some point decides to get up. And he says, in a loud voice, ain't nobody gonna call me a." it. You know, I'm not gonna finish, right? He said, a few heads started, you know. Yeah, that's right, that's right, you know, that's right. He said, I don't know what came over me. But I decided to get up and say, ain't nobody going to call me a Nick, right? And he says the whole locker room exploded with cheers and, uh, and, uh, and excitement and exuberance because right here he is, this white player saying, That's not, they're not going to call me that either. He says, we go out in the second half and we wipe their tails. The game is, ends 37 to 7 and we go on and win. Now, now, here's the point. What is this story about? I tell you this story because it is about identity. It is about how the groups we are a part of help to form our sense of who we are. Who are you? Who are, who are your people? The pastor said that he, as he told me this story, that he was getting chills all over again, recounting that moment. It was a defining moment where those African-American players were saying to him, you're one of us. The pastor, by his action, was saying to them, I'm with you in, in this. I, I, I'm welcoming and, and, and embracing what it means to belong here. What does it mean to have your identity shaped and formed and even sometimes rocked by the experience of intimate community across lines of deep difference? God has something to say about that. God has something to say about the issue of our image and our identity. See, here's the deal, right? The, the central person in the Bible is Jesus Christ. There is one hero in every story in the Bible, and it is Jesus. And he's at the center in part in order to deal with our image problem. Here's what I'm talking about. This is what the apostle Paul He reminds the Colossians of this about Jesus in chapter 1 of this letter to the Colossians. It's a song that the early church sang. We heard part of it, the, the verses leading up to it in our Uh, confession or, or words of assurance this morning where apostle starts in verses 15 to 18 of chapter one, where he says of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation for all things were created by him in the heavens and on the earth, things visible and invisible where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been made through him and for him, and he is before everything, and all things hold together in him, and he is the head of the body, the church of which he is the first cause, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be first. Church's song is that Siri keeps think I 'm talking to her the church's song is that Jesus is first. Firstborn, first cause, first over everything, and he is preeminently the image of the invisible God. He is the only one to ever walk the earth and not have an image problem. In fact, he came... He came on the scene to take care of the image problem we've all gotten. So when the Apostle Paul wants to tell the Colossians how they're supposed to be living here in chapter 3 of the letter, he says to them down in verse number 9, don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have been put have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator." Jesus, the image of the invisible God, comes to renew us in knowledge after his image. Why? Why? Because as he says in verse 3, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Jesus does The re-imaging work that is necessary by by bringing us into, swallowing us up into himself. And because of that, God tells us here in his word to keep our heads in the clouds. I'm not talking about daydreaming. God makes us heavenly-minded people. And heavenly mindedness is not pie in the sky thinking, dreaming about sitting up on a cloud with with wings plucking a harp. No, it's not. Heavenly mindedness means out with the old and in with the new. Two things about this out with the old and in with the new I want to talk about from this passage. I want to talk about a new we A new we, one, and a new world, point number two. The first four verses of Colossians chapter three packs a heavy, heavy punch. The apostle says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Hallelujah, amen. The dominant idea is that your life is different now if you're a Christian. The first way that it's different is that there's a new we, there's a different us. Apostle Paul is saying to the Colossians, There's a new program to follow, and it's called This Is Us. And he's going to tell us what it looks like. I want to tell you, I want, to, I want you to take note of this. Every time the personal pronoun you appears in this passage that we're looking at, it's plural. I I point this out often in my sermons because in English, we can say you and mean you individual or you and mean you all plural. You know, and unless you are from somewhere in the South where you say y'all all the time, the norm For reading the Bible through the cultural lens of life here in the United States is to approach it from an individual perspective. And I'm not saying that this, is a, that this is a bad thing to do. I'm just saying that's how it is. So often when we read something like, if therefore you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, I think in my mind, oh, I've been raised with Christ. I've been called, I'm being called to seek the things that are above. That's true, but that is not the whole deal. The norm in the Bible is that God is not simply making a new person. He's making a new people. He's not making just a different me. He's making a different we. The city of Colossae to whom this letter was delivered was a, a place where many different religions and philosophical views thrived. The word for that is, is pluralism. It's, it's not very different from today, right? Here there was ethnic and there was cultural diversity in the city of Colossae, but there was also a lot of religious diversity. And so when Christianity came to that city, uh, it was added into the mix of all of this other beliefs and philosophical uh, perspectives. And what is the temptation in that kind of setting? The temptation is, look, can we find a way to make Christianity fit within our other beliefs? Can we find a way to make... Christianity fit within our cultural priorities. Can we get some synchronization going on? I mean, aren't all belief systems basically the same? And we're just going to add our Christian philosophy to it. And so from the very beginning of this letter, the Apostle Paul has been driving home the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Everything else is false, and he is true. He calls for an exclusive obedience. Jesus calls for an exclusive obedience, but he is radically inclusive in his exclusivity. He's creating a new people, a new we, and everybody's invited. Right, As I said already, from chapter 1 and verse 18, where the apostle apostle said he's the head of the body, the church. And then down in verse 11 of this chapter, chapter 3, the apostle says, Here, Colossians, here in the church, that's Jesus' body, there isn't Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. There's a different we in Jesus's body and no one is excluded on the basis of of ethnicity or race or gender or social status or education or 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 anything else that we think makes us who we are and I want to say this because it's important that what. I'm describing here, and what's being described here in this passage is not this notion, the notion of colorblindness. It's not a I don't see color kind of attitude where we try to just minimize or ignore our differences. When Paul says there isn't Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free among them. He could say that because there were Greeks and Jews and people who were referred to as barbarians and people who were enslaved in society and people who were Scythians uh, among them. And everybody knew who they were. <laughs> and so you see, right? You, you see me, you see my blackness. I see your Koreanness or your Mexicanness or your whiteness or whatever it is. We see it, but the difference and the distinction is that when we have been raised with Christ, those differences are not barriers any longer to us being in intimate community together. they are no longer hindrances to our being intimately identified with one another. I mean, what do we think that the Christian faith is? Do we think it's just a way to kind of punch my ticket to heaven? Do we think that it's just this, you know, this strange system of beliefs where, People are turned into culture warriors and against the culture such that Christianity becomes defined as being against whatever the culture is in favor of. Christianity is not primarily defined by what it's against. It starts here with this vision of a new we, the renewal and the restoration of the image of God in those who have been raised with Christ who, and whose lives therefore are hidden together with God. Did you hear what he said, right? And our lives are hidden together with God. And here's a challenge in all of this, and all of this, uh, you know, new week kind of stuff, <laughs> it sounds nice. But, but, but there's a challenge, right? Because my sense of identity, my sense of who I am, it like, it grounds me. Right? It, it, it grounds me. Uh, there's, a, there's a groundedness and a rootedness to my ethnic identity. And it can be a little bit disorienting to be shaped and formed into a new we. But here's the deal. I'm not called to check my ethnicity at the door of the church when I come in. I'm not called to check my gender at the door of the church when I enter in. We are called, we're not called by God. To strike a balance between um, uh, identity in Jesus Christ or a Christian identity and an ethnic identity, as if one washes out the other. What we are called to do is understand that being brought into union with Jesus Christ by faith means being brought into a fellowship of love with one another, such that every other sense of identity that I have is subservient to that truth in a church and a church that becomes healthy in that kind of identity and diversity, it helps to form people in this way by revealing that my ethnic identity is not the the absolute most true thing about me indeed every every sense of identity. That we have a tendency to make primary or absolute, to make the sum total of our existence, whether it's my ethnic identity, my sexual identity, my gender identity, my generational identity, my intellectual and academic identity, my athletic identity, and on and on and on and on all of that is subservient to my identity in Jesus Christ because of what the apostle Paul says that Christians' lives are hidden with Christ in God. And this is important. This is important because the commands that the apostle Paul gives in these verses is given to this new we, this new community. What are the commands? Seek the things that are above. Set your minds on the things that are above. Colossians, you ought to be seeking together the things that are above and setting your minds on the things that are above together. Listen, we cannot help but be shaped and formed by the groups that we are associated with. And we know this kind of instinctively, even if we haven't thought about it. We know that we are influenced by others. Oh, you say you know, Pastor? I'm a, you know, I'm an independent thinker. I like to, I like to do my own thing, you know. Well, you, that might be true, but you wasn't so, you know, uh, independent when your parents said, no, you can't go here, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't watch this, you can't listen to that. No, you're not hanging out with them. We might push back when we're children, right? But those values for good or bad, they become foundational for how, how we live uh, and, and how the, the way that we live is, is influenced by others with whom we spend time. Let me, Siri, Siri keeps doing that to me. Let me put it this way. Identity formation is a group project. You don't form yourself. You didn't form yourself. The Apostle Paul is saying. That in Jesus Christ, yes, we become this different we and your sense of who you are is to be shaped and formed by that reality. The reality is that there is is this new we that cuts across all the lines of difference in humanity and the influence on your life together is that you live in a new world. What's new about the new world is that Jesus gives his people different eyes and a different mind. What starts to influence our formation, what starts to influence our identity, our sense of who we are, is the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. Paul says to them in verse verse 3, You all died. You died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. You see, this is so significant. Colossians is a short letter. It's only four chapters. But again and again and again, the apostle Paul feels a need to remind them about death to the old self and life to the new self. That's why he reminds him in chapter 1, verse 18, that Jesus is the first cause of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. He died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose to new life. And then he says in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, in him, you all also were circumcised with a circumcision that was not made with hands by putting off the body of flesh flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all of our trespasses And we say, okay, we get it now, Paul, we get it, we get it. We understand now, but Paul says, I'm not so sure that you do. And so he says in chapter two and verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were living in the world, alive in the world, do you submit to its regulation? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Okay, Paul, we get it. Uh, I don't know. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, again, you all have been raised with Christ. You all have died with Christ. But you're not dead. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Having our lives hidden with Christ in God is real life, it's real life in this real world with a new perspective. With our lives shaped and formed by a new reality. This is the third time. This is the third time in this letter, this text. is the third time in this letter the Apostle Paul is talking about something being hidden. Something being hidden. He says in chapter 1. Verses 25 and 26 that he became a minister according to the stewardship from God to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, Paul says, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What had been hidden and and is now revealed is the mystery that God was going to demonstrate the riches of his glory by giving Jesus to Jewish and Gentile peoples alike without discrimination. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, he tells them that he has a great struggle for them. And those who are at Laodicea in the struggle is that he wants their hearts to be encouraged. He wants them to be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom, he says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what does it mean to be hidden in Christ? The one who has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It means now having the ability and desire to keep our heads in the clouds and seek and set our minds on the things that are above. This is about practical everyday living. Heavenly mindedness, keeping our heads in the clouds is not about daydreaming about what heaven is like. It's not about spending the day wondering what's it going to be like when I go up into the sky. It is about very practical things. He's about to get practical with them in the rest of the chapter heavenly mindedness is about is about what he says in verse five when he starts to say therefore since you've been raised with christ he says therefore in verse five put to death the things that are earthly among you put to death the things that are earthly among you Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, covetousness. It's about putting off anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. It's about not lying to one another. It's about putting on, he says, putting on as God's chosen ones, holy and love, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. He says, as Christ has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You might say, well, I don't need Jesus to be compassionate. I don't need Jesus to be compassionate. I don't need, I don't need to be Christian to be forgiving other people. I mean, I, you know, psychologists will tell me that about the benefits uh, to, to my own mental health if I don't hold grudges and I forgive other people. I mean, if that's what it means to be heavenly minded, why do I need Jesus for that? Here's the deal. God, let's not forget, right? God is creating a new we. It's not about me being a, just being a compassionate, forgiving person. It is about what are the defining characteristics of that community that Jesus is creating. Harbor City Church, what does the Lord God want your defining characteristics to be? How will this church demonstrate to this community that the new world has broken in on the present one? When the United States establishes a relationship with other governments, right? One of the things that we do is we set up an embassy in that country. The embassy in that country is an extension of the United States in foreign soil. And the people who run the embassy are citizens of the United States, and they represent U.S. interests in a foreign country. Well, the community of people whom God has hidden in Christ are an embassy of God's kingdom. The church is an outpost of the kingdom of God in this world. And that means it not only represents, but it extends kingdom interests in the current world. The things that are above that Paul is talking about, those things are the interests of the kingdom of God. They have not fully manifested themselves in this world, but they are present as the defining characteristics of those whose lives are hidden with Christ in God. Let me sum up the defining characteristics of heavenly minded living with two words that are presented in this text. And I'm close to done. I'm close to done in a Presbyterian sort of way, which means when I say I'm close to done, I'm really close to done. Two words, love and gratitude. Love and gratitude. Verses 14 to 17 of chapter 3, he says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Love and gratitude. Love is the binding glue of perfection in Christian community. I did this yesterday in our, in our seminar, but listen to what this old historic document, the Westminster Confession of Faith, Composed in the 1640s, says about, rightly says about Christian community in the chapter called The Communion of the Saints, those who belong to Jesus Christ. It says this all saints, Christians, who are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his Spirit. And by faith have fellowship with him in his grace, in his sufferings, in his death, in his resurrection and his glory, and being united to one another in love. They have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performing of such duties, both public and private, as, as makes for their mutual good, both in, in the inward and outer outward person. Now, that's, you know, old English language, right? A theologian named George Hendry put it this way. Uh, a generation ago, writing about that chapter of the confession and saying they, they got it here 's a kiss because the love listen the love that the the scriptures call Christians to Henry writes, is a love that 's not based on mutual attraction, but it 's a love that overcomes division and reconciles contraries and brings into communion those who might have nothing in common except the fact that Jesus Christ gave himself for them. That Christian love is supernatural because it specializes in overcoming division and reconciling those who are contrary to one another and brings them into an intimate communion of faith and love together. You hear this triple exhortation to gratitude from Paul in the last three verses of the passage. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Do it with thankfulness in your hearts to God. As a matter of fact, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Jesus is necessary for this because the lives that make up this community are people from different walks of life. They're people who might not choose to be together were it not for the fact that Jesus Christ had grabbed their hearts and placed them in community with other people whose heart he also grabbed. Jesus is necessary because this community that he creates is one that understands that they've died and they've been raised to new life in him. And in this new life, they're not just living for themselves. Their eyes are focused on the king because he's given them a new identity. You see, it's Christ. It is Christ who does the uniting here at Harbor City Church. In Jesus, we don't die to die. We die to live seeking the things that are above doesn't mean searching for him setting our minds on the things that are above doesn't mean sitting down in quiet contemplation seeking and setting means having our lives shaped and formed by the things that are above understanding that this sense of identity is coming from the heavenly reality the reality that says Jesus Christ is sitting down at the right hand of God and that is the position of power and authority being wrapped up with him means having the power to have our lives shaped according to his likes and his priorities and his uh, dislikes. The power to have our lives shaped together by the extension of mercy and grace above all things. That's why he says put on love, which is the binding glue of perfection. Listen, it is only those who are the most heavenly minded. It's only those who are the most heavenly minded in this way who are the most earthly good. Why? Because our longing, our longing for peace, our longing for wholeness, our longing for shalom, for healing, for restoration, for renewal is not rooted in the ability of this world to manufacture it and make it happen. It's rooted in one thing and one thing alone the power of God at work through his spirit among the people of God. And so we live as his people with a different expectation and perspective on what is real and what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, that you are indeed making and continuing to make a new we, a new people formed and shaped by your spirit, to live in this world as representatives of your kingdom, with your kingdom priorities. Root this troop deep within our hearts as we strive to live together in love and bear witness to this particular community, to what it means to be brought into a heavenly-minded life. For the glory and praise of your name. Amen.